The rest of us will be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's already been read for you once this morning, but we'll read it again. It's printed for you in total uh, in the ESV translation for you. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a very familiar story for most of us. Jesus has already been born. He and his parents now live in Bethlehem. They're out of the manger and they're in a house. We'll see that in verse 11. Meanwhile, back when the shepherds encountered the angels, if you know from Luke's account when they're in the field and they, they say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men, all that stuff happens on Christmas night. They're told to go see the newborn Jesus and there's this wonderful star there over his manger. At the same time, across the vast desert to the east, wise men, very educated astronomers, scientists, political advisors, all wrapped up into one kind of person, they had seen the star as well. And seeing this star in the east, it caused them to turn and come west. So with that context, let's look together at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the child, uh, the star, had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to your word, Lord, we ask that you would open your word up to us. Lord, we ask that you would take this a very familiar story and yet show us your truth, perhaps new to us. May we see Christ again as our Savior. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple quick caveats before we begin. One, we're uh, giving the slide people uh, the morning off for the sermon, so there's no sermon slides, okay? So I am going to refer to the children's translation a couple times, but I'll read slow so you can follow along. You're not going to have anything to read this time. And second thing I want to uh, just clarify before we begin is that we all get caught up in the star questions when it comes to this text And that's not the point of the text. We're not going to talk about the star because the point that Matthew wants to make as a Jewish Christian writing to Jewish people trying to get them to understand Christianity is that Gentiles have come to worship 
this new king. Because God has a heart for the nations. And so as part of our Advent joy, we get to see that these wise men come from the east in response to the coming of Jesus, they come west. And so with that in mind, I want to give you a theme to help you remember what we're going to talk about today. Maybe you can use this at family worship later in the week or over lunch. You're talking about the sermon. Perhaps here's what we're going to talk about today. The people seeking Jesus come to us. But if we don't know him as king, we won't worship Jesus with them. I say that again. The people seeking Jesus come to us. But if we don't know him as king, we won't worship Jesus with them. And so we're going to see today that we have people coming and they're seeking an unknown king. And, and they come to those who know about an unsought Christ. But when they finally get to see him, they do worship him. So let's look at that together. Seeking an unknown king. It starts out really rather humorous. If you think about this through the eyes of Matthew, a first century Jewish Christian writing to first century Jews, it's kind of funny because, well, Herod is here. Herod, who by all accounts was a very effective king, actually. He was a military ruler. He did lots of public works. He built the very lavish temple in which our Lord walked around in his ministry. He had a very effective poverty relief program. He was a very good king. And verse 1 tells us that he is, quote, the king. And then these foreigners show up. And the Greek verb, the way it's written, makes it seem as if they're walking down Russell Street or going all over the campus estate asking everybody they can, hey, where's your king? And it's funny because they have a king. It's Herod. And they're obviously looking for someone else. So who are these guys? These guys are wise men is what we're often told. It's in Greek, it's magi, where we get the word magic from. These magi were from the east at this point in history, east of the Roman Empire. It's called the Parthian Empire. It's where Babylon and Persia used to be, and now they were part of this empire. These guys were a group of, how can I describe this? They were a group of scholars. They're a group of advisors. They're educated men. They're truth seekers. They're trained to advise kings. They're, they're very much like a cabinet, we could say, of a president or a prime minister today. Get experts around you so when this situation arises, you have someone who knows because you don't. That's what the Magi were. They were a long, ongoing caste or clan of people who generation after generation had been these advisors to Babylonian and then Persian kings and then Parthian kings now. And we know that through the Babylonian exile, through the Babylonian captivity, this cast of, of advisors came into the possession of the Hebrew Old Testament. We know from the book of Daniel that he was actually inaugurated into this cast along with some other Hebrew people. So there was a Hebrew Old Testament Jewish influence starting around 500 B.C. into this caste system, into these people. They understood then what this star meant. They had Old Testament. They saw it and they said, we got to go to Jerusalem. And why have they come? Because it was a curiosity, right? Or, oh no, well just, we want to see what happens. No, they came, verse 2 tells us, to worship him, to pay homage to him, to honor him. You see, boys and girls, they, they didn't come to see something neat. They didn't come because they had some gifts that they had to unwrap. They came to worship something, boys and girls, something they knew was amazing. 
Because Christmas is about worshiping Jesus. And they knew that. That's why they're asking all over town, basically, hey, where's the worship service? Where's the end of the receiving line to to greet this new Savior? We can't find it. Surely it's here somewhere. But there wasn't one. No one in this very religious city knew or cared about Jesus. But here we have outsiders, foreigners, magi, the totally wrong kind of people. They come to worship Jesus. Because God seems to have a thing for outsiders, which is really great for me because I don't know about you, but I, I felt like an outsider my whole life. Always got picked last for kickball and other things. And, you know, it's great that God likes the outsiders. Like, I have hope. And look what God did in this foreign cast of advisors from which we get the word magic, which, you know, in the Old Testament, that's a big no-no, right? God had gathered himself worshipers from that group from the intelligentsia of the day, from the academic clan, we might say. It was a big deal. I want you to understand this because, again, sometimes we get so familiar with the story, we just forget how big of a deal it was. There's a book that's been making its way through the Christian community the last two years. Um, it's, I highly recommend it to you. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, written by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Miss Butterfield was a tenured professor, at a very secular university. She was a practicing lesbian in a relationship. And what most of us think, just from that description, is exactly what people thought about the Magi. The Jews in Jerusalem, if you ask them, who are the most unlikely to want to know anything about the God of Israel, they're like, uh, Magi. Matthew's first readers would be shocked. Here's what's so awesome. Just like God grabbed some of these magi for himself and turned them into worshipers, Rosaria became a Christian. And today she's actually married to a pastor, and her book is about her journey. I highly recommend it to you. Again, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Why am I telling you this? Because most of us in the room, we know somebody who we think is a lost cause, right? They're a long shot for Christianity. We either think they're too bad or we're intimidated by them because they're too successfully bad, and so we don't want anything to do with them. We may be close to them, but we think things, don't we, such as, well, they're just too cynical, too hurt, too angry, too liberal, too conservative for us to even think about introducing them to Jesus. Or, well, they used to go to church, but they had a bad experience. Or their parents made them go to church, so they hate Christians. Or increasingly, even in Orangeburg today, well, their background is actually in an Eastern religion, and that freaks me out. So I'm just going to stay away. See, we're afraid, aren't we, to introduce different people to Jesus. If if you don't fit our little mold of what we think a Christian looks like, it makes me uncomfortable. People like Rosaria Butterfield, people like the Magi did not fit the mold. And thanks be to God that he said, you're mine anyway. That's what this story is about, that Gentiles are coming. The outsiders, people who should not have been, are coming to worship Christ, the newborn king. These wise men show that nothing is impossible with God. He has a heart for all kinds of people. That's why the incarnation, that's why God in flesh is bigger than our whole world. Because from the very beginning, God incarnate was for all kinds of people. 
the Magi believed that this king was for them. And so they headed west across this vast desert seeking an unknown king to worship him. And then once they get to Jerusalem, they find a city that's knowing about an unsought Christ. These Magi are running around upsetting the whole city of Jerusalem. I mean, and get the image of three dudes on a camel, on a camels, I guess you should say, out of your head, okay? That is not accurate. They brought three gifts, but there were probably dozens of soldiers, dozens of slaves and servants. Who knows how many actual Magi were in this entourage that came? This would have been a noticeable group of people. I mean, you didn't just cross the desert with three dudes on a camel, okay? You wouldn't make it three days. It took an entourage for, because of man-made and natural hazards. You had to have an army with you, especially if you're bringing three of the most valuable substances in the ancient world with you. So there's this group running around Russell Street asking who the king is, and Herod hears their question, and he thinks to himself, um, isn't being king my job? I'm pretty sure, yep, crown, uh, I'm the king. The text says he was troubled. The ESV translators are being very polite. Literally translated, he was perturbed. He was agitated. He was ticked off, we could say. Why? Because when Jesus is proclaimed as king of the Jews, it means Herod's not. And he doesn't like that, just like you and I don't like that. Because we who claim to worship Jesus as the resurrected Lord means he's king of us. We're not our own king if we claim to follow Jesus as the resurrected Lord. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior without having him as your Lord. Which means you may be raised in the church. You may know certain verses by heart. You may know certain answers. You may consider yourself a Christian. But if we are not submitting our lives to Jesus as our king... We're not Christians in any way the New Testament would recognize. If there's not at least a little bit of agitation in your heart at what I just said, you don't get it yet. Herod got it. If he's king, that means I'm not, and I kind of like being king. I like being in charge. I want to do this, so Herod's like, "Uh, I got this. Thank you very much. See, this is why real evangelism, the real message of the gospel makes people mad those of you who've actually done evangelism you know you very rarely get the vanilla response yeah that's great see ya you get people who are either ecstatic or they're angry because the message is not be good and behave be moral be a nice person the message is that there is a savior who forgives you and makes you good because you're not good right now And if you submit to him as your master, as your king, he will make you good and make you part of his family. He will forgive you. And many people are like Herod. They don't want to submit to another king. But it's not just the unreligious people like Herod. That's too easy of a pot shot to take. It's the religious leaders in this text as well. All of us, I want to listen to how we did this for the kids. Boys and girls, get out your your little bulletin. Let's look together at your verse 4. Here's what's going on. Herod called together the Bible teachers and pastors in Jerusalem and asked them, where is the Christ supposed to be born? See, he wants a straight answer. So he calls together, you know, put these things in context. He calls together the liberal university professor and he calls together the conservative fundamentalist pastor. And he puts them together and says, okay, I know y'all don't like each other. What does the text say? And I know you'll both give me the right answer. 
And right away, verse 5 and 6, they, they, they read like they know immediately. I mean, we could, we could say they're like, duh, Herod, Bible fail. I mean, everybody knows that. It's in Bethlehem. And here's where it gets sad and kind of scary. These experts on the Bible, these people who knew about the prophecies just like that, these people who saw the Magi and their entourage messing up Jerusalem, who'd heard about the star, maybe they'd even seen the star, and Bethlehem's only like four to six miles away from Jerusalem. It's kind of obvious. Everything they had devoted their lives to is coming to fruition in their lifetime right before their eyes. And there is nothing in this text about them heading to Bethlehem themselves. See, dear flock, you can know the Bible and you can miss Jesus. You can know his stats. You can know his win-loss record. You can know his miracle percentage, but you cannot know him. So often those of us who are religious, who are knowledgeable, or who, or who think they have it all together, are the least responsive to Jesus. You know, a few moments ago, we reminded ourselves that the Magi were the wrong kind of person. They were outsiders, and that God seems to favor outsiders. Those the culture wants to kind of throw away or say, you're not as good as these people are. God seems to bring those kind of people to himself more than any others. In fact, often those are the kind of people that are around a growing church. And so it's actually one of the objections that you hear to Christianity, especially in a more metropolitan setting, is you're going to hear things like, well, the church is full of a bunch of losers. I don't want to go there. Because growing churches tend to be full of people who are not life's winners. Which is, in my mind, actually a proof for the reality of the gospel. Because people who think they have it all together who consider themselves to be life's winners, they don't think that they lack or need something in their life. They're not thirsty. They're not looking for anything. They, they think, I've got it all together. They don't see themselves as marred by sin. They're not seeking after God. They're not looking for peace. See, that's very much the life of these religious leaders here. Both the liberal scholars and the conservative pastors They're both spouting their Bible trivia with no compunction to go and see Jesus. Whereas the powerful philosopher, astrologer people from the evil empire over there that we all know God hates, they are coming to worship Christ, the newborn king. They know they are not the right kind of person to come and worship a Jewish king but they come from their lack. They come from their need. They come from their desire to know this king. Like most Christians come, they come helpless, needy, and not having it all together and just hoping they get to get in. Oh, see, but the promise of God to that little town of Bethlehem is just that. God would send a king to take care of his needy people is what that verse says, they quote. Again, boys and girls, look with me at your verse 6. This has to do with you too. Verse 6 says this, Bethlehem in Judah, you are a very important place. Out of you will come a king who will take care of my people. You see, boys and girls, the religious people didn't want to be taken care of. They thought they were okay. They didn't care. You know, boys and girls, we want you to learn stuff in Sunday school. 
We want you to learn stuff in worship. We want you to learn things at, at home with your parents. But more than having the right answers, your parents, your Sunday school teachers, your pastor, we want you to know that you need Jesus. Ask your parents about that. Ask your parents, what does it mean to need Jesus? And you'll understand better that it's not just about answering the questions. See, for all of us, we need to examine our hearts as we look at these religious leaders and make sure that we know Jesus, not just know about Jesus. We don't want to be like these religious leaders, only caring to have the knowledge. Because when the people seeking Jesus come to us, if we don't know him as king, we will not worship Jesus with them. So these magi came. They came seeking a king they didn't know. And they found a people who knew about him but didn't seek him. But finally, we get to see the magi worshiping the seen Lord. We jump forward to verse 11. The magi don't wait around for the Jews. They hear Bethlehem's the place, and they hit the road, Jack. And they go to a house, in verse 11, not a manger. I'm sorry, I know we love the little manger scenes with the three wise men around. Sorry, this is like a year and a half to two years later. They weren't there. They're in a house. They live in Bethlehem now. Jesus was running around as a toddler, and they see him. They see him and his mama, and when they see him, they lay themselves down flat on the ground and worship him. Now, there's liberal scholars out there saying, well, they didn't know Jesus was divine. That's just what Persians do. They, they prostrate themselves before important people. It's not true. It's not true. Persian Empire and Persian culture was gone. This is called the Parthian Empire, and they didn't do that. But all over their empire and all over the Roman Empire, you could walk into one of the several idol factory temple things that were in every major Roman city or Parthian city, and you would see people falling down before a hunk of carved metal. You would see people falling down before this uh, volcano gases coming up through the ground called an oracle. You would see people falling down before a carved stone thing because what you did in their mind is if it's got a connection to supernatural, you fall down before it. And so when Matthew is a first century Roman Christian writes to other Jewish Roman citizens trying to convince them of Christ, and he says they fell down before him, they would say they thought Jesus was divine. They were worshiping a kid? You go worship a piece of metal, you don't worship a human. What's wrong with you? They were giving themselves to one they considered to be God. That's what you do before something supernatural. These men, these professional scholars, were looking for this Savior to come. They knew he was somehow divine. If you asked them to define the Trinity and the person of Christ, they would not have been able to do it. Of course not. But they knew somehow he's connected to God. And so they fell down and worshipped him. And after they worshipped, they gave of themselves. They gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. <clears throat> Now, people are always trying to make something out of these gifts, trying to find some sort of hidden meaning in these gifts. Look, they're just three things from the area of the Parthian Empire that were very expensive. He, they give them gifts from their homeland, the best they can afford. Don't try to find hidden meaning there. Just, they came and said, this is what we have access to. This is the resources we have. As part of our worship, we want to give them to you. They bring honor to Jesus. And then an interesting providence, by the way, you know, we know from the offerings that Joseph and his family gave in the other Gospels that they're poor. He's a blue-collar carpenter. 
there's about to be a decree comes down that says everybody's going to die in Bethlehem. And so he is told to go to Egypt. That costs a lot of money. How many of you could pick up your family right now and relocate for two to three years in a foreign country? How about if God had people come into your life who gave you three of the most expensive things on earth? Would that, would that help? Yeah, see, there's more here than just worship. God is helping protect his Messiah so his Messiah can save his people. It's a wonderful thing to think about how this all works together. But here's what's really important about this. They believed him when they saw him. They saw no miracles to prove that Jesus was king. He didn't, he didn't all of a sudden make a bird appear, you know. They didn't hear Jesus teach, probably couldn't even talk yet. They saw a toddler, an infant, and they believed the promises of God. And so they worshiped and served him. Oh, we have so much more than they. Do we worship and serve Jesus? This Christmas, is he just a cute baby in the little manger scenes? Or is he actually the savior of the world? the Savior for you, the one who can bring health and healing to all kinds of people, even magi from the dark east. See, this incident with the magi tells us a lot about God. The magi were doing their nightly stargazing, trying to discern wisdom from the sky, and they saw this new star appear. They remember the Hebrew Scriptures. They looked diligently into them and realized it is time for the king of the Jews to arrive. So they did not sit back and wait for him to come to them. No, they went to the child because he could not come to them. These magi make this incredible journey to encounter King Jesus. Oh, the message of Christmas. The beauty of the incarnation. It's bigger than our whole world because King Jesus made an incredible journey to encounter us. God's people needed help, but he did not sit back and say, okay, here's my rules, obey them, and then I'll help you. Come on, jump through my hoops, be a good little dog. No, he came when his people could not and said, you know what, I'm going to come to you and get you out of the pit because you're stuck. That's why Christmas is bigger than our whole world because he comes down to those who cannot come up. He gets inside of our flesh. He takes one of our bodies So he can draw us near with very real arms and embrace us with a very real love through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That God sent his son, his only son, to be human like us. To live the life that we should have lived. And then he had flesh. So he could be broken. So he could bleed. So he could die the death that we should die for our sins against the holy God. Oh, dear flock, please hear me today. Do not be like the people of Jerusalem. Satisfied to know about Jesus and to know his word, to to like the stories that we read, to know the content but not know Jesus. All the joy we feel at Christmas, the presents, the family, the trees, all those things are wonderful. They're great gifts, but they are not knowing Jesus. All those things are wonderful, but they're a very small Christmas. But Christmas is bigger than our whole world because Jesus came as king for you. Jesus came down to be your king. 
He's the only master who says, you are going to fail me, but I have died already for your failures. So when you fail, I can forgive you. This Christmas, this moment, embrace this Jesus as your king. The resurrected king of kings. Let your heart fall down before him in worship. Open up your life's treasures to him and give yourself to King Jesus. You will find fulfillment and peace and joy and you will understand why I keep saying Christmas is bigger than our whole world. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we are often very familiar with with so many things in, in church world and in your word, and we, we're not moved by them as we should be. We are very often like this Jerusalem, knowing but not caring. Oh Lord, would you help us to have the eyes of an outsider to see afresh the beauty of your gospel and then to seek out our Lord Jesus? Would you draw us to yourself as you drew these magi to yourself? Oh, Lord, we ask that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, you would be true and draw all people to yourself. This Christmas, Holy Spirit, would you come and open up our hearts to give ourselves back to you. Give us a serious faith and forgive us for playing with the gospel. And we ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.